And so let's hear God's word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, um, all of us have a certain kind of identity. Now, for some people, you find your identity in the things that you know, intellectual things. For those of you, maybe you find your identity in things that you do. Maybe you're good at, right, fill in the blank, you know, you're a handyman kind of thing, or you're good at, at uh, uh, your job, or you're good at, you know, sports or music or whatever it is. And, you know, in some ways, this is fine, finding our identity in these things, because this is how God made us, right? And so if we are um, investing in these talents and these gifts that God has given to us, that's, that's part of who God made us to be, and that, that's fine. The problem, of course, is we tend to put too much of uh, our self-worth into our identity and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, Paul here... Uh, part of what he is doing as he concludes this opening greeting is he is speaking about us as Christians and who we are, who, uh, what our identity is as believers. And certainly there's a lot to say, but he says a few things uh, here in this way. But he also speaks to us in regard to our duty. Uh, by inference, not quite as directly, but certainly the things that he says here, especially in verse 5, speak uh, to this. So as we've seen in these opening words here in this greeting, Paul has, first of all, introduced himself, uh, but then he turns the attention immediately to the gospel, and then he spends time focusing on who Jesus is and his identity. And the central words there in verses 3 and 4, uh, we've spent some time on here the last couple of times. Paul then uh, has given us one of the most concise statements about the person of Christ in all the New Testament. Uh, most likely, this was an early creed or possibly a hymn that they sang, speaking in regard to Christ, who is God's son. He took on a human nature by humbling himself, and so he is fully God in every way. He is fully human in every way. There is no attribute of his deity that is set aside, uh, though his glory is veiled. Uh, there is no attribute of humanity that he does not have. He was like Adam before the fall. In this way, he was without sin. And so as the God-man, Jesus came, and of course, he obeyed the law for us. He died in atoning death on the cross, but the emphasis here is on the resurrection. And so the resurrection changed everything, declaring to everyone that Jesus is sinless, declaring that he died for our sin, not his own, declaring also that God accepted the work of Christ for us. But the point that Paul emphasizes here is that Christ is declared to be God's son with power. He no longer 
was hiding that power. He was no longer looking like a regular guy, but after the resurrection, everything changed. And certainly with the ascension and glorification of Christ, uh, we see this, God at God's right hand. Um, Well, as he says in verse 4, the Spirit uh, raised Jesus from the dead. Now that same Spirit is enabling Paul, and by extension us, to live righteously. So we come then to verse 5, and it says here, through him, now you recall that Jesus Christ our Lord actually ends verse 4, and so through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. All right, so through Jesus, the one who has been raised, the one who is the glorified son of God, whom Paul serves, right, verse 1, well, Jesus called Paul and sent him to proclaim the gospel. So in many ways, verse 5 takes us back to verse 1, where Paul began. In this verse, though, he says we, which uh, would suggest to us that he's referring to all the apostles that received grace and apostleship. So the 12, then minus Judas, add Matthias, add Paul, and probably James, uh, Jesus' brother in that category, in that group of men. And yet, even though Paul is likely referring to that, he is focusing on himself here. And so I have received grace and apostleship is his emphasis. I am proclaiming the same message as all the others, and it's by God's grace. By God's grace, I am saved. By God's grace, I have been chosen to be an apostle. And as he says in other uh, places, none of this was deserved. He was persecuting the church, and uh, and he is constantly uh, referencing how sinful he, he was and is and how gracious God has been to him. And so as we talked about in verse 1, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 9, of course, the events on the Damascus Road and so forth. And so he's referring to that again. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned in verse 1, let me say here again, only these men held the office of apostle, apostle with a big A, if you will. But in a lesser way, all believers are apostles. All believers are saved by grace. All believers are sent by Christ with the message of the gospel. And so though Paul here is certainly referring to himself, uh, by extension, these ideas apply to us. And so as Paul is seeking to be a slave, verse 1, obeying his master, the question then by inference, and what he'll go on to say here with the obedience of the faith, The question is, are we doing the same kinds of things? Are we going out like Jesus sent Paul? We may not go to the ends of the earth, but are we taking the gospel message to those around us? We must. We should do this by talking. In Sunday school, we talked about apologetics. Certainly, there are many words that we can use to, to speak to others about Christ. Uh, In the evening, in Titus, we've been focusing, especially in chapter 2, on how we are living and how that is uh, a um, part of the gospel message, you might say. At least it uh, it affirms it. Um, But what are we doing? Are we taking the gospel to others? Or are we keeping it for ourselves? Are we so focused on our day-to-day living as, as individuals and as families that we are not 
taking the gospel to others. We certainly talk about it, but are we doing so? As Paul was commanded to do this, again, by extension, so too are we. If we want our church to grow, the more we do this, the more likely it's going to happen. There are all kinds of things we can do. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth. But we do need to go with the truth. We can hold Bible studies in our homes. We can talk with people at work. There are all kinds of things that can be done. And so, as Paul says, through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. And that extends to us. Now, the next part of this is for obedience to the faith, is how the New King James says it. Your translation may word it slightly differently. Once again, this is a phrase that has been greatly discussed over the centuries. There are numerous suggestions regarding what Paul means. But let me focus on what I think it means, and certainly I'm not alone in this. Um, And notice, first of all, this is the first time Paul uses the word faith in the book of Romans. And when you combine the word faith and the word believe, he uses it 61 times in this letter alone. That's about one-eighth of all the uses in the New Testament. And so clearly this is important for him. And we'll see this especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4 in particular, where he emphasizes faith. But notice also this. We have this, this phrase for the obedience of the faith. Let's turn to the end of the book in chapter 16. And uh, you might remember, I did this with verses 1 and 2. And uh, he begins and ends the letters with the same ideas. And so in verse 25 of Romans 16, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So those verses are very similar to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1. And now verse 26, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. So he has the same phrase here at the beginning at the end. So what does he mean? Well, one commentator said there are seven main views here to try to understand what he means. Well, I think there are two ideas in particular, and uh, the first is this. The gospel message is a command. We are commanded to believe. The gospel message is not just an offer. We can talk about the free offer of the gospel or something like that. Okay, fine. But in the end, it's a command. And so, as I just talked about, we are to go tell others about Christ. We need to command them to believe in Jesus. It is a command that they must uh, obey. And if not, if we disobey this command to believe, then we face judgment for it. Now, just because it's a command does not mean that faith is a work. Faith is not a work that God accepts as somehow meritorious. It's not that... God required the people in the Old Testament to obey all these laws, and now in the New Testament, we only have to obey the command to believe. This is not work salvation. Faith is not a work. Faith simply is looking to someone else to do it for us, trusting in Christ 
who obeyed the law for us that we have not and cannot keep, not completely and perfectly. And he is the one who has taken the punishment that we deserve. And the only punishment that we can take is eternal. But Jesus has done it for us. And so faith is looking to him, obeying the command by saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. This is not a work. This is a response by looking to someone else. All right, now, that I think is part of the meaning here of the obedience of the faith. We are obeying the command to believe. But once we are saved, true believers then want to obey Christ. And so wholehearted trust in Christ and complete devotion to him in our everyday living is what this phrase is communicating to us. Okay? And so uh, this phrase is, if you will, filled with meaning. And Paul's going to go on and talk about both of these things. He's going to talk about the command to believe here, especially in chapters 1 to 4. He's going to talk then about the obedience of the faith, which we see in chapters 5 to 8, but then we see uh, in chapters 12 and following. And so it seems to fit well with what he goes on to say. But the challenge here for us, of course, is that none of us can believe in Jesus as Savior without obeying him as Lord. We live in a culture that does not like the idea of obedience. We live in a culture that wants to just live as we please. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. Jesus is our master. Remember, Paul begins with that in verse 1. He is a slave of Christ. Jesus requires obedience. Now in the 80s, some of you may remember the lordship controversy. And John MacArthur in particular spoke out against it uh, very uh, specifically. And this is the idea that we can believe in Jesus as our Savior and we can get our fire insurance, so to speak, but we don't have to obey him. We're saved, but it doesn't matter if we obey him or not. Now, on the one hand, that sounds just totally ridiculous. And yet, this has been a very common view in the American church over the last generation. The lordship controversy of the 80s morphed into the sonship controversy of the 90s, which morphed into the gospel-centered issues here in the 2000s. It's still with us. Now it's morphing into the social gospel issues of the critical theories. But uh, it's all related that... um, We don't have to do both. But Paul is saying, absolutely not. We have to obey the command of belief, and then we have to live by faith and obey our Lord Jesus. All right, now Paul's going to go on and expand on these things, so let's look at this just briefly. If you turn to chapter 3, in chapter 3 in verse 11, verse Uh, The second part of the verse says, there is none who seeks after God. None of us can obey the call to believe unless God comes to us first. If you look at verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. In the end of verse 12, there is none who does good, no, not one. 
So uh, again, this is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. There's not something that we can do to make God happy with us. We are unrighteous. We need Christ to be righteous for us. This is why we are putting our faith in him and not in ourselves. If you turn to chapter 6 a moment, in verse 20, Paul uses this language. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? You just wanted to sin. You didn't want to do the right thing. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And so none of us sought God because we were slaves. and We didn't want anything to do with righteousness. But Christ has come and he has set us free so that we can believe and we can obey. So keep your hand here. I want to turn right back. But let's first turn to Acts chapter 17. Dale referred to uh, the Areopagus this morning here in Sunday school. And uh, uh, what was it, a couple weeks ago, Lydia was here and was telling about her trip to Greece and how she went to the Areopagus and such. Um, maybe more well-known for us, called Mars Hill, same place. But notice what Paul says in verse 30, Acts 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So again, there's the turning point in history as we talked about. But to our purposes here today, you see, this is a command to believe. Paul is saying this. We're commanded to repent and put our faith in Christ. So the question for us then simply is, have you done that? Have you done that? It's easy to say you're a Christian, especially if you've been sitting in a church pew for many years. But the question is, are you really a Christian? Have you obeyed the command to believe and to repent? Now let's come back to Romans 6 again. And in verse 17, Paul then says this, Romans 6, verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. We were slaves, we were set free, now we can obey the command to believe, okay? and then we obey from the heart by living by faith on a day-to-day basis. So again, the question for us simply is this, are you doing that? Are you living by faith? Okay, we're not talking about outward religion, we're talking about genuine service to our God. So, Paul has been sent with this message. And so the first question is, are you listening to his message? But then the second question is, are you taking the same message to others? This message is for us, and this is a message that we then are to take beyond ourselves. All right, well, as always, we can say much, but let's... um, Bring in the next phrase here. He says, among all nations, for obedience to the faith among all nations. Uh, 
Here is Paul's <coughs> um, uh, statement here to say that the gospel is far more than just a word to Israel, a word to the Jews. Paul, of course, was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he went to a number of nations, even before he wrote this letter. He went to Syria and Galatia, even Cyprus, Asia Minor, to Macedonia, to Greece. And here now on his third missionary journey, he writes this letter to the Romans and then goes there in person approximately two years later. This message, this apostleship, he has been given and he's been obeying. He's been living by faith, doing what his master told him to do. Now, for us... You see, Christ, uh, excuse me, Paul's obedience to Christ means blessing for us, <laughs> because as Paul shared this message, especially in this westerly direction, that message then continued on into Europe and eventually here uh, to America. The message is spread by various people over the centuries, various writings, obviously the scriptures. It's gone throughout the world, including us here in Western PA. And we, in this area, historically, have been part of the Reformed tradition. If you know much about William Penn and religious freedom and such, uh, for a few hundred years now, uh, Pennsylvania has been a hotbed of conservative biblical thinking across denominations. But even here in our area, Scottish Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith has been common. And, of course, we believe this is most consistent with Paul's teaching. And so we have Grove City College, we have Geneva College, we have Pittsburgh Seminary, we have Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. All these things have, are an outgrowth, in many ways, of Paul's obedience here. And we have enjoyed those blessings. Now, unfortunately, those things are waning in our area, but historically it has been uh, a great blessing. So Paul here is saying he is bringing this message, this obedience to the faith, to Christ, to all the nations. And he ends the, the verse by saying, for his name. Paul is doing this not for his own glory. He's not doing it so that we can praise him. And likewise, when we bring the message of the gospel to others, it's not for our own glory. It's not to make us feel good even. It is for Christ's glory. As slaves of Christ, we too have been sent with the message of the gospel, and so all glory belongs to him. He is our God, verse 3. He is our only Savior. Salvation benefits us, surely, but Christ deserves all the praise. And so Paul, in this final phrase in verse 5, is highlighting this point. Now let me put these several ideas here in verse 5 together by reading a moment from uh, Dr. Boyce, and he, he says it this way, In my opinion, the weakness of much of our contemporary Christianity can be traced to a deficiency at precisely this point. Now remember, he wrote in the early 90s. By failing to present the gospel as a command to be obeyed, we minimize sin, we trivialize discipleship, we rob God of his glory, and we delude some into thinking that all is well with their souls when actually they are without Christ and are perishing. As typically is the case for Paul when he is beginning a letter, he packs so much into these opening words. 
And I'm just touching on each of those, and we'll develop them as we go along. But I think Boyce is on to something, and now if he were still alive 30 years later after he wrote those words, I'm sure he would say it uh, with even greater emphasis. Unfortunately, the American church has lost its way. And uh, one of the main reasons is we're not following in Paul's footsteps, and we're not giving Christ the glory in it. Uh, We're taking it to ourselves. Well, as always, much to say. Let's look at verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul now moves toward mentioning the recipients of his letter. But he doesn't mention them by name yet. He says you here, and in fact it's, it's repeated. Okay, whom you, you also. And so uh, he is emphasizing his recipients in this way. And he says that they are some of the ones among the nations. Right, Verse 5, among all nations, among whom you also. So among the nations, you are the ones who believe. Now, remember, Paul hasn't been there yet. And as far as we know, no apostle had been there yet. You recall what I I did when we started the letter, that we turned to Acts chapter 2, and we see how believers, or I should say Jews, in Rome went to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And some of the 3,000 that were converted that day were Romans. And so they went back to Rome with the gospel with the message of Christ, and God then uh, built his church in that way. So do you see what this uh, indicates to us? The church is not ultimately based on the work of an apostle, or a prophet, or a missionary, or a pastor, or an elder. Ultimately, the church is because of what God has done. Now, this is not to say that apostles and prophets and so forth are unimportant. Remember Ephesians 2, they're part of the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. But ultimately, a church exists, and the one in Rome exists, not because of Paul or Peter or anyone else, but because Christ called its people to faith, beginning there in Pentecost. And so they were among these nations that came to Jerusalem heard the message, and took it back here to Rome. And so Paul then uh, says that they are part of the called, the called of Jesus Christ. All right, now, you remember in verse 1, we saw that same word, that Paul was called to be an apostle. And now he is saying this about the Roman believers. Jesus called Paul to life spiritually, and he called him to be an apostle. Now the believers in Rome are called, he says. Let's turn a moment to uh, chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 30. Romans 8 verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called... These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. When Paul is using this term call, uh, he actually includes several things. But one of the most fundamental ideas here is that uh, Christ called him first to faith and then to this duty as an apostle. For the Romans, he's emphasizing the first of those things. 
that Paul, or excuse me, Christ had called the Romans to faith. Now, the language that we use today as, as uh, theologians and so forth, we call this the effectual call. The outward call is the message that we bring to others, right? When we are telling people about Jesus. The effectual call is when the Holy Spirit uses our words and then changes somebody's heart and brings them uh, so that they can obey the gospel message. And so this is what Paul is emphasizing, and it's true of all believers, not just Paul, not just the Romans, it's true of us, okay? the, that we too are among the nations, and Jesus has called us to faith. All of us are, uh, were slaves of sin, as we read in chapter 6. All of us were as enslaved as Israel was in Egypt. All of us are dead in our sins, using the language of Ephesians 2. As dead as Lazarus in the tomb, or the dry bones in Ezekiel. Okay, all of us were like this. But when Christ calls us by the Spirit, we then come to life. Okay, we then are set free so that we can respond with repentance and faith. And Paul is saying, hey, you in Rome, that's true of you. Christ did this for you, just like he did it for me on the Damascus Road. He's done this for you, too, and by extension for us. If anyone is a believer, it's because we have been called by Christ's Spirit so that we can believe and so we can live an obedient life for God's glory. All right, well, that brings us then to verse 7. <clears throat> to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. All right, you remember when we started this section in verse 1, I talked about the first century letters a little bit. And I uh, remember that in the first century, they would start with who wrote the letter. So Paul begins that way in verse 1. And then they say who's going to receive the letter. Well, finally, we're getting to that here in verse 7. We had a hint of it in verse 6, but now here they are stated by name. <clears throat> you remember we looked at Acts chapter 23, where we saw that letter from Claudius Lysias, and uh, that was a typical first century letter. Uh, Paul is following the same uh, basic format. But as I mentioned before, this is a lot longer of an introduction. In fact, verses 1 to 7, this is the longest introduction that Paul gives as a greeting of any of his letters. And as far as we know, it's the longest opening greeting of any letter in the first century. And that's because of its importance. So he writes here then, to all who are in Rome. Obviously, this was the capital city of the Roman Empire. It was thoroughly sinful and corrupt and power-hungry. Obviously, the Caesars were there, all these, you know, it's like Washington, D.C. You know, it's a place you don't want to live kind of idea, <laughs> okay? At least in my opinion. Um, but there were possibly about 50,000 Jews there and now, there are a bunch of Christians. Now, remember, you got Pentecost to this point. You're talking at least 25 years. And so over this time, people came to faith. How many? We don't know. Hundreds? Thousands, possibly? How many churches were there? We don't know. Maybe there was a dozen house churches. Maybe there was a hundred. We don't know. Paul's going to mention some of them by name in chapter 16. But however many there were, Paul says, to all in Rome, 
to all of them. He's not just writing to some of them, but to all of them. So likely this letter then was passed around the various house churches for them to read. But there's more to it than this. When he says to all in Rome, he is also anticipating what he's going to spell out beginning in verse 16. And that is, he is writing this letter to all the Jews in Rome who have believed in Christ and to all the Gentiles in Rome who have believed in Christ. As I mentioned before, when the, the church was first formed, it was mostly Jewish. But then Claudius kicked the Jews out because of the debates about Christ and uh, then the church became mostly Gentile. And by the time Paul writes this, that's still the case. We don't know how many. Was it 55 to 45 percent? We don't know. Maybe it was three quarters Gentile. Whatever the case, it was mostly Gentile. <clears throat> and yet Paul is saying, I'm writing to all of you. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, but I'm a Jew. Okay, so he's writing to everyone here. And so then, by extension, that includes us here 2,000 years later. All right, now notice some of the identity that Paul uh, addresses here. Uh, he calls them beloved of God, and then called, and thirdly, saints or holy ones. These are terms that um, were used in the Old Testament uh, for Israel. Um, and, and now Paul is using these same terms for uh, the believers in Rome, the believers that are among the nations. So this, this isn't just for the Israelite. Not surprisingly, these terms are ones that he uses uh, over and over again in the letter. He uses the word love 24 times and holy 20 times. Not as much as faith, but certainly a, an important word for him. Um, and then the word called actually We've already looked at all of them. <laughs> the particular words only used 10 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses five of them. Verse 1, verse 6, now again verse 7, and the two in, verse, uh, in uh, chapter 8. Okay. <clears throat> now this is important because Paul is saying this is who we are as Christians. First of all, he talked about his own identity in verse 1. He talked about Christ's identity in verses 3 and 4. And now he's speaking about our identity as believers. And so first of all, he says, you are loved by God. Okay. We live in a culture today where people do not feel loved. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to find an identity. Okay. But we have the privilege of knowing that God loves us. And not just in some vague way. He has specifically loved us. When the Bible talks about God's love for his people, it's usually in the context of election. And that's true here, too. Okay. If you turn uh, a moment to Deuteronomy and chapter 7. <clears throat> Notice how Paul uses all the words here, okay, the same key terms. In Deuteronomy 7, let's start in verse 6. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. In other words, saints. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. 
The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Paul takes those terms and says, you were slaves of sin, like Israel were slaves in Egypt. But you've been set free because God has chosen you. God has loved you. And he has kept his promises that he gave to the fathers. So think when um, God initially chose Abraham, right at the very beginning, he said that this blessing would be for the nations. And so as God goes from the whole world down to one man, even at the beginning, he's going to bring blessing to the whole world, to all whom he has chosen. And so God loves believers among the nations. Not every last individual, but God loves some among the nations. He has chosen believers just like he chose Israel among the other nations. And so when Paul says here then in in, uh, verse 7 that you are beloved of God, he is saying God has chosen to save you. I mean, what greater identity is there than that? Instead of the identity as sinner, as slave of sin, as, as a rebellious, hateful person, we now have the identity of loved by God. And so God has been so gracious here in this way to love us. And then secondly, Paul says, you are called. Again, we have that word like verses 1 and 6 and in chapter 8. So he not only chose to save us, he has actually done so. He has sent his spirit to work in our hearts, to change our hearts so that we can respond in faith and repentance, the obedience of the faith. And so we are called, effectually called, chosen and called here uh, by God. And so, right, Romans 8, he develops these ideas. And then thirdly, he says that we are saints. Uh, Your translation may say holy ones. Uh, It's the word for for holy, uh, to be set apart. And so as we read there in Deuteronomy 7, Israel was set apart to be his special people. So now we have been set apart to be the special people that God has loved. Notice that this applies to all believers. We're not talking about the extra godly. Saints aren't just the popes and the Mother Teresas of the world here. All true believers are saints. All true believers have been set apart All who have been chosen, all who have been called, are set apart from the world. And we are holy in God's sight because of what Christ has done for us. And so if you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, it means that God has chosen you and has loved you, has called you, has set you apart. This is our identity. Now, there's more to say, but this is what Paul is talking about here. This is who we are. You, you might have an identity as being a good teacher or you know, being a, a good employee at work or whatever it is. You might have identities in these ways, and, and those can be fine. But ultimately, our identity is this. 
loved of God, called and set apart. What an encouragement that we are a special people, a special people to God. And so, do you see how that then motivates us for the obedience of the faith? We want to live by faith now. We want to do what our God has told us to do. All right, well, the verse 7 then and the introduction ends here, the, the opening greeting with this last line. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, on the one hand, you could call this a greeting, but really it's a blessing. It's a benediction, as we would say. <clears throat> but Paul is taking the normal first century letter and he's adjusting it. The normal first century letter, as we saw in Acts chapter 23, would use the word kyrene, which means to rejoice. And so if you are seeing someone and you say kyrene, you say, I rejoice to see you. If you're writing a letter, you're rejoicing in this ability to communicate. Now, for Hebrew letters, they use the term shalom, which means peace. Okay. Well, Paul takes this. And he takes the word kyrene and replaces it with the word charis, which means grace. And so he Christianizes the Greek greeting. And then he keeps the Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace. Okay? But he gives it a far greater meaning. It's not just peace from Yahweh. It's peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what was hinted at in the Old Testament as now expressly stated here in the New. And so grace and peace from the Old Testament God, who is our Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And with verse 4, we have the Holy Spirit there. The Jewish God is also the Gentile God. He'll expand on that in chapters 3 and 4. Okay. So this blessing, Paul is then placing upon the recipients of the letter. As an Old Testament priest... He's pronouncing a blessing like I do at the end of the service. Right? And so this blessing that he gives was for the Romans and by extension to us. And so may God then grant us grace and peace in this way. And so Paul is praying that the Father would be gracious to us, that the Son would be gracious to us, that we, they would grant us peace, that we would have favor, his favor, and a close relationship with him. Certainly this is true initially in our salvation, but also daily in our Christian living as we walk by faith. Okay. And so he's going to expand on these things, of course, as we go along. Let me end here today by calling our attention to the names of God in this section. As I've said many times, um, focus on the names of God and it will help us to see the point. Notice the name of Christ here, first of all. In verse 1, we have Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, depending on your translation there. In verse 4, we have Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 6, we have Jesus Christ. In verse 7, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Son in verse 3 and in verse 4. And we have four pronouns that refer to Christ. Ten times he refers to Christ here in this, uh, these opening words. And then he refers to God. And when Paul uses the name God, he's referring to the Father. Okay, there are only two times of the dozens and dozens of times that he uses the word God that he is referring to Christ. 
Um, Otherwise, he's referring to the Father. So in verse 1, he says God. Verse 4, he says God. Verse 7, he says God and God our Father, plus three pronouns. So seven times he refers to the Father. And then in verse 4, the spirit of holiness. So notice the point then. Salvation is all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, Christ is central in that sense, but ultimately the gospel is God-centered, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three have worked to save us so that we can be loved, we can be called, and we can be holy ones. And so... As always, there's much to say, but we'll see Paul develop these thoughts as we go through the letter. And so, Lord willing, next time we'll start looking at some of his uh, other introductory statements here, which will lead to the main theme in verses 16 and 17. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word, and we are thankful, Lord, that um, you have given us such an identity. We are thankful, Lord, that Uh, Though our identity is in Adam, sinful, corrupt, foolish, and evil, and uh, a wretch, and so on and so forth, that you have changed that identity, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your grace, because you have shown favor to us, because you have called us and changed our hearts, and that you have accomplished this salvation through Christ. God, who has come to be a man, we, we praise you, Lord, for what you have done to make us your own, that you can call us holy, not just in some random way, but because Christ has been holy for us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have set us apart from the world of sin and that you have granted us these great blessings. So may we then live according to the obedience of faith, that we would initially believe and obey the command to believe, but then that we would live by faith, like Paul, taking the message to others, being godly in every way. We pray, Lord, for the strength of your spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to strengthen and encourage us, enabling us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel and that is honoring to you. We pray, Lord, for your, um, your name to be glorified in all of this as we seek to serve you, our Lord, our Master, and our Redeemer. We pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen.